life can be counted on to do what life does, namely throw us curveballs. Despite all our best efforts to control it, no matter what we might believe about how prepared we are, no matter what we might believe about justice and fairness and who deserves what, no matter what we might believe about the existence or not of a supreme picture of life's curveballs, God, as it were, we all get them out of the blue, out of our control. Now, justice and fairness are core to UU principles. Ask anybody here. And we're all about justice, too. God knows. Although I sometimes marvel that we say that with a straight face, as if we know what that means, as if it's universally understood. Don't you suppose the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks believed in their heart of hearts that they were acting out of a deep sense of justice? The crazy irony to me is that many of us were taught from a very early age that life isn't fair. At the same time, we were also taught to wait your turn, don't cut in line, give somebody else a chance to play with the ball. I sometimes wonder if we spend the rest of our lives trying to reconcile this dance of opposites, knowing it isn't fair and yet still shooting for and aiming for some sense of justice and fairness no matter how impossible to define or realize. Not long ago, I listened to a podcast, an episode of This American Life, all about a professional theater director who was staging a production of Hamlet in maximum security men's prison, using the prisoners as actors. As I listened to the stories unfold, my heart just opened up to the astonishing beauty and the healing, redemptive power of art on these wounded souls. Of course, I didn't know anything about the crimes for which they'd been convicted until much later in the hour. But once I did hear about those horrors, ideas about justice and fairness became far more murky. Here's the very intersection of where inherent worth and dignity meets justice and fairness. Now, it's a common chant to hear at any number of protests or rallies for one just cause or another, no justice, no peace. Of course, I get it. More often than not, I applaud the message and the messenger. But what happens when that injustice hits closer to home? Like, say, a diagnosis of cancer. How do we possibly come to peace when wrestling with an injustice like that? In my work as an oncology chaplain, I meet folks all over the spectrum. And from what I observe, everyone from the devoutly religious Christian to the cool cerebral atheist, at some point along the way, bumps into this wall that says, but this isn't fair. I'm a good person. I did everything right. I got mammograms every six months. What do you mean I have stage four breast cancer? But I'm only 42 years old. At the very same moment, these folks might espouse that other truism that nobody said life's fair, right? The cognitive dissonance between these two perspectives can really pack a wallop to one's spirit, truly intensifying suffering. On the other side, there are also those who, who will proclaim, often quite proudly from the outset, I have never asked why me. Why would I? I look around the world. I see suffering everywhere. I see little kids who get cancer. So I just look around and I say, why not me? The way I see it, that statement is its own kind of coping strategy, an attempt 
to construe some sense of justice and therefore pathway to peace because, after all, it's random. It's impersonal. Shit happens. Somebody had to get the cancer. Maybe it was my turn. But I find that even with those folks, at some point along the path, we'll bump into the wall that says, but this isn't right. This is me now. Heidi was 32 years old, newly diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She called the center where I worked, desperate for someone to talk to to help her make sense of all this. She used that expression several times. Heidi had been raised a Protestant, but more recently had found some inspiration in some Buddhist readings she had done. Michael, I don't understand how this could be happening to me. I'm a good person. I've never knowingly hurt anybody. I've been taught since I was a little girl to help others. I'm always the first to volunteer. And I've been praying so hard, but God doesn't answer me. I'm so angry. She raises so many themes with these statements. Not only this desire to make sense of it, but who or what is God? How does prayer work? What do I do with my anger? But front and center is this theme about justice and fairness. Over my years of study and reading, I've come upon this perception, this theory, that for any genuine transformation to take place, it must be preceded by a betrayal and a death. Betrayal, death, transformation. We might look to the Jesus story as an example, that Jesus had to be betrayed, had to die, for the whole centerpiece of Christian theology to take place, resurrection, transformation. This pattern exists in many of the world's great myths, betrayal, death, transformation. Now, it needn't necessarily mean a physical death, but maybe of a belief, an economic or political system, the death of a relationship, maybe the death of a career path. It might be interesting to look back at your own life at moments of profound growth and see if by chance such moments were preceded by something that could be seen as a betrayal and a death. With Heidi, as it is with so many cancer patients, her old understanding of what was true, who or what is God, how the world works, simply wasn't big enough to contain this new reality. It had to be betrayed and it had to die for there to be any possibility of a new truth to be revealed to her that might just be big enough to contain this new reality. When we really teased apart what her statement revealed about her beliefs, she had to admit that she believed if I'm a good person and do the right thing, I won't get sick and I won't die. It's not so different really from a belief in Santa Claus. If I'm a good little girl and I eat my vegetables and I don't snap back, I'll get a shiny red bicycle for Christmas. In a way, she had to grieve the death of Santa at 32. It's something for all of us to consider. Can I be open enough and porous enough to allow in a new truth when the old one just isn't big enough to contain this new reality? Angela came to the same spiritual crossroads, but from a very different path. She came from a path of New Age thinking, uh, meditation, a belief in karma, another way of saying it's a just universe out there. Michael, when I was first diagnosed, I started meditating five, six, seven times a day religiously. But then when my scans came back and showed me that there was disease progression, I felt so betrayed. 
And I realized I wasn't meditating for the right reasons at all, not for the peace it could give me in that moment. I was meditating because I thought it might cure me. Both Heidi and Angela were attached to a very specific outcome, namely cure, as the only thing to validate and affirm that there was indeed justice out there. It was the only thing that would do. It would have to be the most human of all urges. Who doesn't want to be cured of cancer? But what if it's simply not in the cards? What if the most either could hope for would simply be more time living with chronic illness? Or what if, God forbid, this disease does meet the imminent end of my physical body? Am I not entitled to peace? Am I not entitled to an experience of wellness or healing that may not include cure? How do I possibly come to peace in wrestling with an injustice like that? Abby's in her late 40s. She's an artist. She's a teacher. Lost the love of her life, her husband Paul, after 20-some years of marriage to pancreatic cancer. Abby and Paul never had children. They filled their lives with their love of each other, their dogs, their work, and their beloved Christian science faith community. It was a centerpiece of their world. When Paul was first diagnosed and given a poor prognosis, even with medical intervention, despite the tenets of their faith and the admonitions from their faith community, they decided to go for it. Life was too precious not to give Paul this chance. He did last for two grueling years, but the disease did take his life. And their choice to go with medical intervention ended up costing them their faith community which was a devastating blow for both of them. He's been gone for over two years, and Abby still struggles so desperately with ideas about justice and fairness. I don't understand, Michael. I still can't let it go. Why him? He was such a good person. Why us? Why me? It doesn't make any sense. And in the same breath, she would also say, and I don't even believe in that stuff anymore, that God rewards good and punishes evil. There's betrayal and death. Her grief is so deep, it is so profound, it is so complete that she finds herself without any hope whatsoever. No faith whatsoever. No desire whatsoever for more life. And yet she confides that she would never consider taking her own life. Why not, I asked. I love my parents too much. I couldn't do that to them. And I love my dogs. They need me. And if there is life on the other side, I want to spend it with Paul. And what if doing that meant I couldn't do that? Couldn't be with him. Old beliefs die hard. So we concluded that she still did have faith in love. It was enough to keep her here by a thread. So we started there. Just perhaps laying the foundation for transformation. Standing on the other side of all these stories, struggling to claim justice and fairness, is Lyle. Lyle's in his mid-70s. He's a crusty fellow with this good old boy southern demeanor and drawl about him. He's spent most of his life as a loner, an outsider, and having spent a number of pretty turbulent years there as well. He does love to ride his motorcycle, though. That's the place he finds his peace. He also finds himself with a diagnosis of stage 4 lung cancer 
living in an assisted living facility where he says the subject of judgment day, who gets into heaven and who doesn't, is a constant topic of conversation around the elevator, in the community room, which he calls God's little waiting room. <laughs> now, Lyle would never identify as religious by any stretch, but his southern Baptist roots do run pretty deep. And the core of his spiritual distress is, Michael, what if I don't get into heaven? In other words, what if there is justice and I'm standing on the wrong side of it? I asked Lyle if he were God, would he condemn himself to hell? And he thought for a moment. He said, you know, Michael, no, I would not. I would say, Lyle, you should have gone to church more. You should have kept my day holy. But no, you can go to heaven. Go on now. <laughs> I was glad to hear it. I asked him if he thought perhaps riding his motorcycle up PCH on a gorgeous Sunday morning with the sun and wind in his face, feeling grateful to be alive, might be its own kind of prayer. Might it be its own kind of worship, its own way of keeping the Sabbath holy. He liked that idea, I must say. Speaking of modes of transportation, serving as a pathway to spiritual awakening, I don't know what it is about me and my 12-year-old car that can absolutely bring me to my knees, but there you have it. It's not the first time an episode with my little Prius has served as fodder for a sermon. Not long ago, I was at fault in a little fender bender. I clipped the rear bumper of this very expensive, gigantic SUV. I have also shared in the past that such careless human mistakes on my part that cost real money to remedy me unrelenting self-reproach. The owner of the SUV was gracious enough to allow me to give her $700 to fix the few scratches on her bumper without putting it through my insurance. Damage on my car was another story. Front bumper was pretty badly smashed, as was the hood. But it was all cosmetic damage. Car was perfectly drivable. I didn't even consider the possibility of getting it fixed. After all, it's an old car. I certainly don't need to spend my money on that. What's more, I don't deserve it. But I have to say, in the days and weeks to follow, every time I went to get in out of my car and was confronted with that damage, I suffered all over again. Punishing myself. How could you have been so stupid? How could you have been so careless? What were you thinking? I think my husband Scott grew a little weary of listening to me and he finally said, why don't you just get a bid and see what you're talking about to get the damn car fixed? So I went to a few body shops feeling so much shame and embarrassment with each stop to admit this was my fault and that's not why we're going through insurance. As if they care. <laughs> and the best bid I could find was $1,500. Well, forget it. I'm not spending that out of the question. Around the same time, a dear friend called. I was deeply honored when he asked me to officiate at his mother's funeral. There'd be a small graveside service. Whenever I'm asked to officiate in a funeral or a memorial service, I always feel as if I'm being bestowed with a sacred trust of sorts. And of course, given the work that I do, as you might imagine, I always see the big picture and hold the higher perspective. <laughs> the thought actually crossed my mind. What's everybody going to say at the cemetery when they see the minister get out of this beat-up old car? <laughs> the more I thought about it, though, a new idea came to me, which for me felt huge. 
What if I chose to get my car fixed and instead of seeing it as a punishment or a penalty, I chose to see it as a spiritual exercise, as an opportunity to invest in my own peace of mind? What if I were to invest in forgiveness? What if I were to invest in grace to be a human being who can make a mistake? For me, this felt huge. And so that's what I did. I picked up my car the day before the funeral, so glad to have it back. And I got up early that next morning to drive to the cemetery. And it felt so nice to have my car clean and refreshed and looking its best. I got to the cemetery a little early to tend to a few things before the guests arrived. And I actually caught myself glancing across the lawn to see my car parked over there, looking its best, feeling kind of good about that, in a cemetery, the place where we contemplate the eternal and what's truly important in life. (laughs) The funeral was on a Wednesday morning and I needed to get back to work. I stopped at a Pollo Loco to grab a quick lunch before heading back to UCLA. I was careful to park on the far side of the lot all by myself just to be on the safe side. I know you know what that's like. I came out to the parking lot after lunch. I couldn't believe my eyes. My car sat there by itself across the lot. The rear bumper completely smashed. Hit and run. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I can't have my car nice for a day. I don't even have the visa bill yet for the $1,500 I was willing to invest. So much for my little spiritual exercise. So much for my investment in self-acceptance, in peace. I went out of my mind. It was as if a dam had burst. Not knowing what else to do, I picked up the phone and called Scott. And I got his voicemail and I just ranted and wailed and screamed and cried into that phone. I can't believe this. I can't accept this. Look at what I do for a living for so little money. Is it too much to ask to have a 12-year-old car be nice for longer than a day? (laughs) It must have been quite a sight to see me in my good suit and dress shoes running around that poor local parking lot, (laughs) screaming and crying into my phone. But I was also acutely aware of what an obscenely over-the-top and inappropriate response this was to something so inconsequential and insignificant, particularly given the work that I do. Every day I walk beside people living through real tragedy and look at how I'm carrying on. But the thing is, a core wound had been ripped open and the bleeding was unstoppable. And that wound, that place that lives within me, that lives within many of us, I believe, that clings so desperately to the idea that the world should be fair and life should be just and people should do the right thing, God damn it. And at this stage of my life, I find when those wounds, those core wounds get ripped open, the best strategy I have is to simply stand in awe of the power of the wound and be a witness to it rather than try to talk myself out of it, rationalize why it is I should think or respond differently than I do. You don't rationalize with a screaming baby. You pick up the baby and you hold it and you say, there, there, until the wailing subsides. Several months earlier, one of the chemo infusion nurses referred to Valerie on her first day of chemotherapy. Valerie's 36 newly diagnosed with breast cancer, first day chemotherapy, she's a working mom. 
when I first talked to her, she said, yeah, Michael, at first I really struggle with why me. But I've put all that behind me now, and I just want to focus on getting through treatment. The longer she talked, it became abundantly, painfully clear that as much as she would like to have believed that so, it simply was not. She was very much struggling with why me. And the core of her spiritual distress was not her diagnosis. It was hearing the news that she would now no longer ever be able to have any more children. She and her husband were desperately trying to get pregnant at the time she was diagnosed. She was also growing so weary of trying to keep spiritual scorecards. I know, I know, I should be grateful. I have one healthy child and I have a wonderful husband and I have insurance. I know. She grew even less patient with those in her world who wanted to keep that spiritual scorecard for her on her behalf. Valerie, look at it this way. Do you know how many people can't have even one child? You should be so grateful and count your blessings. No one in her world was simply allowing her to experience her loss, to be a witness to her grief. All her regularly throughout her chemo treatment and that grip of injustice never did loosen from around her throat. With her chemo now complete, the next step in treatment, surgery, I went to see her in the hospital the day after her mastectomy. The first thing out of her mouth, Michael, look at all those beautiful cards everybody sent me and those balloons that say get well on them. I just can't let it go. Those should have said, welcome to the new baby. Congratulations. My little Pollo Loco catastrophe had been a couple days earlier. I took a big risk in choosing to hear about it not remotely to commiserate or to compare suffering, but to illustrate the power of a core wound once it's been ripped open. A wound that Valerie and I share, that I think many of us share, particularly as Americans, that we are hardwired to have this expectation that life be fair and just. I don't think all cultures struggle with that. And when that wound gets ripped open and we are confronted with the depth of our disappointment, fueled by all of those expectations of justice, maybe we just need to go a little easy on ourselves. So I would ask myself, can I come to a new relationship with the wound itself? Come to a new peace with it. It's not going anywhere. Can I learn to live in the tension between these two competing realities? On one side, it's random, it's impersonal, life isn't fair, shit happens. But on the other side, sometimes it does seem like justice is served. Sometimes it does seem like I get what I deserve. Sometimes it even seems like things happen for a reason. More to the point, can I offer grace to that part of myself that still clings so desperately to my idea of what's just and fair, like the crazy man I was in that Pollo Loco parking lot, can that grace even know that that little part of me might never let go? Maybe offering that grace to myself, to that wound, might offer a pathway to peace with injustice. We'll just have to see. I'm working on it. So be it. Thank you.